Welcome to Diversity Connects Us. This podcast highlights lived experiences and inspirational stories of strength and tenacity. We will share profound and courageous dialogues that influence diversity, equity, and inclusion by breaking the barriers and labels of stereotypes, confronting biases, and offering best practices to achieve a more significant, cultural, and emotionally intelligent mindset. Systemic racism, it is important for managers to empower employees and provide them with resources for having productive conversations about race. Dr. Nika White will unpack how important this really is. We are excited to have you here with us today. This conversation is going to be on fire. I am looking forward to you all meeting my guests today. We value your feedback and opinions. Please drop them in the chat. We intend to respond to as many comments and as many questions as possible. This takes a great deal of effort on our part, and I'm really grateful for all my loyal guests. Every week, sometimes even twice a week, we create new content and we look forward to you subscribing to our YouTube channel and to keep up with us. My name is Rochelle Carrier, and I'm a DEI consultant and authoress of Emotional Intelligence, a toolkit for managing diversity, equity, and inclusion. The link to purchase my book will be in the comments. And for a living, I help organizations implement DEI plans and reframe their cultural mindsets through thought-provoking workshops and webinars. Join us as we continue to share the different voices in the DEI space. Dr. Nika White is a national authority and fearless advocate for diversity, equity, and inclusion. As an award-winning management and leadership consultant, keynote speaker, published author, and executive practitioner for DEI efforts across business, government, and not-for-profit and education, Dr. White helps organizations break barriers and integrate diversity into their business frameworks. Her work has led to her designation by Forbes as a top D&I trailblazer. Today, we welcome Dr. Nika White. Welcome. How are you today? And thank you so much for joining us. Rochelle, thank you so much for inviting me on your Diversity Connects Us platform. I really look forward to being in conversation with you. And um, I'm really excited to delve in. Awesome. Can you tell us something that the audience might not know about you? One thing so we can try to relate to you. So let's say that the audience might not know about me. I'm trying to think what to share because there's so much that I feel like people know about me because I am pretty routinely sharing a lot about my life on social media. Um, Well, I enjoy travel. I enjoy spending time with my fur baby. I have like a 15, 16 year old Bichon and he's the only one in the house now because my kids are grown and out of the house and they're in college. And so he keeps me company when they are away. (laughs) Oh, how does that feel to have them out of the house? Do you have to refigure things out and fill in the gaps when they're not around? No, it feels wonderful. (laughs) My husband and I are really enjoying being empty nesters. I love when they come back to visit, but I've gotten so used to having the home to myself during the day. And so, yeah, I love their visits. But yes, that's what we write. what we do. We help our kids to go fly and be free. And so I'm at that point now. Yeah, absolutely. And to be independent and to see the fruits of your labor. 
Yes. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) So let's dive in. So does talking about race, you believe, cause mistrust in the workplace? I think it can, but I think that what we need to interrogate more so is why does it cause mistrust? And I think that from my experience, when the conversation of race has created divisiveness in the workplace, it's because the culture of the workplace is not conducive for people to feel free to have constructive candor with each other as they are really unpacking and processing different circumstances, whether it's happening internally or even externally to the four walls of the organization. I think also where mistrust comes in is when the conversation is mismanaged. And what I mean by that is, is the culture conducive to where there are community agreements that can help ground everyone around these really tough conversations, right? Are people really engaging with the level of curiosity that causes them to engage in dialogue whereby they aren't reacting, but they're more so listening to learn and respond. So I think that there's so many missteps right now that organizations have not intentionally implemented that is creating a bit of distrust around the conversation of race. But I don't think that it has to be that way. It is important for us to acknowledge difference. And race is one of those significant dimensions of diversity that we can't shy away from. And so not having the conversation, I think, does not serve us well. We have to be willing to broach the conversation in a way that is productive, that is healthy, but that certainly helps to center equity because we can't talk about equity if we aren't willing to talk about race. And I know that organizations who really value the work of deepening their commitment to diversity and inclusion and belonging, it's necessary to be able to talk about race, because that is where I think that we find our grounding and how to be intentional to create equitable systems and policies and procedures that allow for everyone to have full opportunity for success. So yes, there is some mistrust, but I think it's more about interrogating why does that mistrust live right now in organizations where people are challenged by conversations of race. Right. My book is about emotional intelligence, and I really think leaders, thought-provoking leaders, CEOs, C-suite level leaders, mm-hmm. really need to understand not only their own unconscious biases and the stories that they've been telling themselves, we tell ourselves too, because we all have unconscious biases. Sure. Right? And I think there's a level of why am I thinking the way I think when we talk about emotional intelligence? Do you think that's an important part? in being able to have this type of conversation? Well, absolutely. I think that emotional intelligence, it helps us to be self-aware when we engage in dialogue that we know can be challenging for some people. And so if we're attuned to that emotional intelligence, it gives us the ability to then be very directive about how in which we may enter to that dialogue. Not everyone is coming to the conversation of race fully knowledgeable, fully aware of self and even of just the general constructs of race and how it shows forth and why it's important. And so I believe that that emotional intelligence allows us to be thoughtful about how do I engage this person? How do I navigate this conversation in a way that allows for people to give themselves permission and agency to follow their curiosities so that, you know, they're exercising constructive candor around it? And so I definitely believe that emotional intelligence is an incredible tool that benefits us all. 
regardless of how delicate the conversation may be, but certainly for conversations like race. Right. You know, resistance, I often say, is a lack of clarity. And so if mm-hmm. someone is resisting entering into dialogue, it's usually because they are uneducated. Being uninformed and uneducated about a topic certainly can cause us to wish to disengage, to not exercise that high level of emotional intelligence. And sometimes people can feel like, I am putting myself in a position where I can be guilted, shamed, blamed, attacked, and no one wants that, you know? And so I think there's a lot of complexity around the race conversation that we have to consider. And definitely at the core of it is willingness to lean into that emotional intelligence. And let's face it, Rachel, for a lot of people, the reason that the conversation is hard is because they just don't want to engage in the conversation simply because perhaps they like the fact that they are a part of that dominant culture and they want to maintain that power. And so I think that we have to consider our audience and maybe what their intentions are, how they are entering the conversation. Not every conversation is meant to be had with every person by every individual. And that's also a part of our emotional intelligence as well. Am I the vessel? Am I the mouthpiece that should be delivering this message? And and delivering this message and having this conversation at this precise time. And so I think that it takes emotional intelligence on all parties to realize if they're being triggered by something, then maybe that is a moment in time where I need to take a step back and really evaluate questions like, am I the right person to deliver this message right now? And what is the best way to deliver the message? Sometimes it's not just a face-to-face conversation. Sometimes you have to think about what can I do to warm someone up to this conversation? Maybe it's share articles, you know, or bits of nuggets here and there. Maybe it's also identify who are those key stakeholders and influencers of that individual that I'm looking to influence that perhaps may have greater social capital with that person. So there's a lot to consider as it relates to this very complex topic of race. Right. You said some pretty important things. And when I go back to what you said, it triggered something in me and I realized Why do you think it offends people when we talk about race? Do you think it has to do with them being fragile or feeling that they're going to be put in a position that they have to divulge information that they are not right now comfortable with? Rachelle, I think it's all of the above. I think it's certainly the fact that some people just aren't comfortable. And part of that discomfort has everything to do with not knowing how to respond the uncertainty of what could surface in this conversation that may cause me to feel like I need to defend myself. And when we get into that mode of feeling like we have to defend ourselves, there's a certain level of aggression that can surface, right? And when aggression meets aggression, the conversation ends or either the conversation escalates to a very unhealthy place. And so entering dialogue, not knowing where the conversation could go, when you realize that the topic is very delicate, it certainly creates this guardedness that I think sometimes prevents us from really being able to navigate those conversations effectively. And then, as I mentioned before, I think that in society, we have witnessed and experienced so many hard realities of the ugliness and the harm behind race discrimination that it, it's triggering for a lot of people. And so even those who may have the best intentions of really just trying to listen, to learn and to influence and gain perspective, I think that it can quickly escalate just because maybe we aren't fully aware of what triggers us. 
And I also think that sometimes if we aren't careful, we will engage in dialogue about race with individuals who are not equipped to have that conversation, simply just not equipped because they have either reached a place and a point to where they're so dogmatic about their position on it, or even sometimes they may create harm by saying things like, I don't see race, I don't see color. And that is also harmful because it's an erasure. It's an erasure of who people are and their identity, which is very important to them. And so I think there are a number of reasons why this conversation can feel very uncomfortable and why there's a lot of resistance. And let me say this too. I believe that we have to be willing to press through, power through our discomfort. We have to choose courage over comfort because it's not going to go away, right? Race is not going to go away. We're not. Um, The conversation is not going to just, you know, completely go away just because we feel like it's uncomfortable. So I don't want to deal with it. And again, I would rather us to cause people to feel some sense of discomfort and to sit with that discomfort and hopefully growth comes out of that discomfort than to just ignore the conversation altogether. Because in order for us to really be able to realize an equitable society, there's no way we can do that without talking about race and the constructs of race and and how it continues to show forth across every system. We have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable, which is what I know a lot of people are not willing to do. Right. And it's interesting. You said we have to get uncomfortable with being comfortable or vice versa. I think are actually, yeah, uncomfortable. But the thing is, with being uncomfortable, it also has us being put in front of a mirror and facing exactly what it is that's happening at that moment. And I can give you an example. I think I mentioned it briefly backstage. When George Floyd was murdered, there were a lot of emotions that occurred within me and unresolved emotions based on race and how I was affected by racism growing up. I'm now living in South Florida, but I was living in Montreal for 35 years. And I didn't realize what I was going through in Montreal until 35 years later when George Floyd was murdered. And I think what you said was interesting because I was in a very uncomfortable position where I had to come to terms with what was happening to my race in my family culture, you know, I had to make do and understand that it was a process. And I went through a process of anger and I knew during that process, I couldn't really communicate with that many people. Right. And then I went through a process of, if I didn't have my daughter, I was the one who was going to go on the street and black lives matter. And my fists were up and I was just, I was very livid. And then after that, I shifted and I was very sad. So then as I was sad, I realized that there were things in me that I had to make amends with, and I had to find a way to communicate what it was that I was feeling. So on the other side of the coin, you know, that uncomfortable space that I was in was an angry space. And that was the space that I chose not to speak to that many people because I had to come to terms with what was going on or what had happened. Yeah, no, that resonates with me, Rachel. I think that so many of us, particularly those of us who are in this space of DEI work, we had to navigate that time, you know, following George Floyd's murder, where we were expected to be the strong ones. We were expected to kind of hold space for others as they were processing and navigating the complexity of 
does my employer even care about what just happened and how that has impacted me personally and how that may now impact how I show up to this workplace and what support is available to me? And so it definitely resonates. I think that the silver lining behind such a traumatic situation that was so visual and was so hard is that it did cause a lot of people to realize that even in my discomfort, I can't sit on the sidelines. I have to engage in meaningful dialogue to help educate myself first and foremost, and to help know what part I can play in helping to dismantle this systemic racism that we continue to see show forth. I even think back to your Rachel, the framing of the question that you asked, you know, why does it offend people when we talk about race? And if I were to be honest, even that question, if I were to really interrogate it at its core, was triggering for me because I'm thinking, why are we not asking? Why are people offended by someone's race? The framing sometimes can really also be a tool and how in which we may engage people, how in which we may think about or reimagine some of these conversations that we know we need to have. But I tend to care less about people being offended by the conversation. Mm. And I care more about the fact that people are offended by one's identity, you know, and that's the conversation that I think we need to be having. So anyway, I just wanted to share that. But yes, I definitely resonate with all that you communicated that you were dealing with and that you felt. And I think so many people probably also could align with those sentiments. Right. And when we think about the demographics in general, who should be having these conversations? Us? (laughs) (laughs) You know, like you said, there's a fine lining right there. And we also have lived and shared experiences. Yeah, that's such a big question of who should be having the conversation. Well, my short and simple answer, which I'm using that language very loosely because there's nothing simple, it's very complex, but a short answer is everyone. This work belongs to all of us. And I do realize that there is a perception out there that I also subscribe to, that there is a stronger sense of responsibility and onus that falls on the white dominant community to make sure that they are really leading the way of helping to resolve these issues that they continue to benefit from. Many white individuals who are well-intended will say, well, my ancestors did, I didn't create that. No, but you're still benefiting from those systems that are creating harm for people who look like me. And so in that regard, there is a sense of responsibility that you should own. Now, as a Black woman that is a practitioner in this space, I know my responsibility as well. And I made a conscious decision as a DEI practitioner and as a Black woman to say, I want to be able to leverage whatever emotional capital I have to be able to engage in this work, right? Not everyone has that calling. Not everyone has that ministry. Not everyone has that as their purpose and to each its own. And so I am also keenly aware of the harm that can be caused by the expectation on Black and Brown people to always have to be the voice of reason, the voice of compromise, the voice of educating our white counterparts on things that they have ample resources to be able to learn on their own. But I also hold in mind that part of the white community's role in being allies and really helping us to dismantle these systemic issues and systems that continue to harm black and brown people is that we have to help them get proximate to the lived experience, right? And the best way to do that is 
to be willing for those of us who have that emotional capital and that wherewithal to help collaborate with them. One of the things that I say to allies most often is that at bare minimum, allyship is about action, not just any action, but useful action. So how do you ensure as an ally that your action is useful for those in which you're allying for, those historically marginalized communities? You have to get proximate to the problem and to the issues. You have to understand those lived experiences. And that comes, if you are a white person, that comes from asking questions, being curious, and doing your own research and your own learning, but then also being willing to, in a very collaborative way, ask questions of those that you've built relationships with that you're allying for, what does support look like for you in this moment? You know, questions like that are really critical. Otherwise, we assume that we know how to support those communities that are being discriminated against. And what we feel like could be a solution for that may not be the solution, right? And so I believe that there's a challenge in how in which sometimes people enter this conversation where they place all of the responsibility on one party only. And I do think that it's a shared responsibility. But I'm also very much in alignment with people being self-aware enough to understand what can I take on at this moment in time? And it may be that I don't have the capacity to take on any of it, right? And that's okay. And let's let those individuals to have great permission and agency to say that without causing them to feel any type of guilt, right? We can only make that call for ourselves. Right. And I'm talking about the black and brown people when I say that. (laughs) Yes, I'm talking about the brown and black people. There is definitely a heightened level of responsibility and onus that I think the white community should carry right now. Right. You know, before we move on, I have quite a few comments here from our audience. And Catherine Castro, thank you so much for joining. And I'm going to look over and read she said quite a few things this morning. So she says, who delivers the message? Absolutely. I learned this in my counseling group. Someone, oh, someone's, I'm not the one and that's okay. She said, right. And she's like, we're not going anywhere. Reminds me of the grieving cycle. That's what I went through. And she says, I hear you, sis. Mm, Yeah. Right. I'm sure she's probably referring to what we were talking about early on about George Floyd and also what we need to do as a black race. And I hope I am pronouncing his name well. I see him also in all these beautiful spaces. He's in Amsterdam, I believe. And please oh, correct Michael. me. Yes. <laughs> I had a feeling it was Michael. Michael. Yes. Yes. And I was going to ask you, how do I pronounce? I do not like to mispronounce people's names because it's part of our identity. <laughs> so it is Michael. And he said, anger is part of the healing process. Yes, yes, exactly. Exactly. It is. It is. We have to let ourselves have full agency and permission to follow our emotions where they take us. You know, I think that for so long, part of the harm that has been created has caused us to just, you know, harbor all of that. And then we're expected to just kind of get over it. Well, you know, it's easily said than done. And so I certainly appreciate Michael's commentary um, there. Yeah. And that's okay. We're going to feel angry. We're going to feel sad. We're going to feel frustrated. We're going to feel exhausted. I mean, all of those feel words are real and we need to validate them, not cause people to be shunned because they're feeling that that type of way because we all process differently. 
And I think that was some of the frustration too that I heard from many individuals who had to return to the workplace after George Floyd's murder. And it was almost business as usual. They didn't allow people to really feel what they were feeling. And what they didn't realize is that not only was it personally impacting those individuals, it also was impacting performance and productivity. Because what happens outside of the four walls of an organization, if we think that's not impacting the way in which people show up to our organizations, interact, make decisions and work with each other and collaborate, then we are misguided because it definitely does. And so I think that was one of the big lessons that many organizations had to face and realize after George Floyd's murder. Absolutely. So do you think that DEI is something that's new? Do you think it's something that's trending? You know, because I'm reading a lot of posts and I see, you know, this is a new thing and this is trending and something that's only come about since George Floyd's murder. It's definitely not new. I do believe without a doubt that George Floyd's murder created this groundswell of reality for a lot of people who prior to maybe seeing that very visual and hard evidence that yes, these type of things do exist, they happen. I think that it caused people to have a heightened sense of appetite to again, start exploring it further, start engaging in dialogue. And you know, once you become aware and you deepen your exposure, then you can't help but to at least engage in conversations around, should we be exploring this? If we do, what does it look like? And that's what was happening. And so, Rachelle, I'm sure that you saw this as well. But after that time, DEI practitioners all over were inundated with calls, organizational leaders wanting help to navigate this. What do we do? What does it look like? Right. So it's not new. I think there was a newfound energy and appreciation for the reality of it to where it created an opportunity. And although it was bittersweet the way in which the opportunity came about, I think that what we have to do as individuals who are champions of diversity, equity, and inclusion and belonging is let's see this as how can we fully leverage it to get more people now into the conversation in a way that can lead to meaningful change, meaningful, sustainable change. And that was really my mantra when I went through the process myself after George Floyd's murder. I was already committed, but I saw so many people counsel out organizations Mm. and individuals, right? right? And I've spoken about this before. I understand it, but I'm not a fan of the council culture. I believe that it does more harm than it does good. I believe that people enter this conversation at different places, right, within their learning journey. And we have a choice to make once those individuals enter into the conversation. That is to counsel them out and push them away because we're attacking them, we're blaming, we're shaming, we're guilting them. Or that is to help support them on their journey towards really finding meaningful ways to help us all emerge stronger. And I just choose the latter because, again, I do believe that resistance is often a lack of clarity. Mm. Now, that does not at all take away the need for true accountability, right? I'm not saying we give people a pass. But I am saying that we need to be very thoughtful about how in which we bring people along. Right. Right.